Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange Podcast. Stories by leaders for leaders to help you raise the bar on your own excellence to release the potential inside of you. Now, here's today's podcast. Greetings, it's Hugh Ballou. Here we are at another session of the Nonprofit Exchange. And as always, We have a really, really good guest. He's got some really good things to share with you today. Pull up your chair, get your notepad out. The next hour will be some ideas that you can implement. We have John Gies here, and I'm going to ask John to talk about himself. He's coming in from Denver, Colorado. And John, we won't tell him yet, but you got a brand new book out. And we'll, uh, we'll just highlight the book. So, John, welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange, and tell people a little bit about who you are. Great. Thanks, Hugh. I, I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to sing the song, It's Been a Long and Winding Road, because it's taken a long time to get to who I am and where I am right now. But today I work with organizations to help them manage their communications in two ways. One, to help them create the message for their marketing so that they attract the customers that they want to do business with. In the case of nonprofits, it's the donors, it's the funders, it's the clientele that they want to bring into their organizations. And it's how we communicate with each other. And the way, I haven't quite found the metaphor yet for this, but I know that the way that we communicate with each other is the secret to success. It lights us up and brings us alive, or it turns us off and tucks us into a hole. Um, I spent 30 years in corporate sales, ranging from fiberglass insulation to debt collection to business process outsourcing. And I got to the point where I had a conversation one day with a guy that said, John, $400,000 is a rounding error. I don't want to make a change. I said to myself, if I can't make a difference in $400,000, I need to be doing something else. And so I embarked on the path to where I am today, which is a professional speaker, a business coach, and a communications coach. That transition from, I see your face. Was there a question there? No. I love that story. Just go ahead. I'm excited about that. So when when I left, it was like, well, what do I want to do? As I tried to look at other companies, or other industries, the the road seemed to be closed. So I said, well, what do I like doing? I love speaking in front of an audience. I love training and mentoring my teams. I love facilitating that conversation around the table where we've got different interests, maybe sales, operations, technology, and a client, trying to create a common vision and trying to get to that with all of those different points of view. So I said, well, why don't I become a coach and a trainer? So I went to work with a company, and I got a chance to do some teaching and coaching across North America and Europe around sales, sales training, presentation skills, negotiation skills. And I hate to sound stereotypical, but stereotypes do exist. The Brits were almost on time. The Germans were early all the time. The French and the Italians showed up when they wanted to show up. It was just a really interesting experience. And the Americans, unfortunately, were the ones that said, yeah, we're doing great. We don't need any help. So it was an interesting experience for me. Ah, that's stereotype, but it's sad, isn't it? 
Well, it is, but it, and yet it says something about us, right? You know, we, we, stereotypes are stereotypes in some cases. I heard um, his name's going to escape me. Someone once said, if you hear a cliche, look for the truth in the cliche, because there's probably something in there that led to the cliche. Well, isn't that why they're cliches? Right. So um, while I was working with them, when they had lots of clients, I was busy. When they didn't have clients, I wasn't busy. So I decided to embark on my own. And so today, today I work with organizations with what I call a wholehearted approach to business. It's not a name that you often think of when you think about business. But wholehearted is really three pillars. There's the profit, revenue, money. I used to work with a nonprofit healthcare executive. Uh, I'll call her Sister Mary. She said, um, you know, people come to me all the time and say, why don't we provide this for free? And her response was, if there's no money, there's no mission. So it's really making sure that we have the money to fulfill our mission. Then there's leadership. Self-leadership starts. If we can't manage ourselves, we can't lead other people. And then there's... Hey, Russell. Greetings. And then if we don't have... Then it's the impact that we have. It's the impact we have on our people, on our clientele, on our community, the environment, the whole thing. So the three pillars. So highlight those again. Um, Russell, there's a little bit of background noise, so I muted you, so you'll have to unmute when you come on. So he's putting on his headset. So, um, John, I want to get those uh, those three three points. Those were went by fast. Those uh, let's capture those bullet points. Sure. So there's profit. Whether we're in a nonprofit organization or a small business or a big business, if we don't have money, we can't fulfill our mission. And it's people rely upon us to to be here in the long haul. It's not just a dream to serve. We have to create the sustainability for our future. There's leadership. And leadership starts with self-leadership before we can lead others. Um, and I can share with you in a little bit about what I mean by that. But if I think of the one place where leadership is the weakest, it tends to be with ourselves. And then it's the third pillar is impact. What impact are we having on our clients, our customers, our employees, our communities, and our stakeholders? Um, I was really influenced by a book called Firms of Endearment. This was a book that was, it's a good to great comparison of stakeholder organizations versus shareholder organizations. Stakeholders are employees, vendors, the community, the environment, and shareholders. And they outperform the S&P by like, 16x. They outperform the good to great companies by a factor of 10x. And this lasted even through the Great Recession that we just went through. So for me, it's how do we take care of all the people in our organizations instead of just focusing on one limited subset of our stakeholders? Absolutely. Um, You know, we teach those very same things. But it's good to have you on here because people don't listen to us. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> um, no, we're we're um, we're so much in in sync with that because if we don't, 
John Maxwell in his 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership has the law of the lid. And your organization, it's the lid. You hit the top, the ceiling, the lid. Your organization cannot progress any further than your ability to lead it. And um, that's something that comes true and true over and over. And really, our, our boards, our teams, our cultures are a reflection of our leadership. You may or may not know that I'm an, uh, a musical conductor. No. What they see is what I get. And so what I practice in real life as a conductor works in the boardroom, works uh, with the staff, works with the volunteers. And so it really doesn't matter where we're leading, the, 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 the concepts are the same. So Russell, um, Russell's coming in from, from a remote location. He was trying to find a, a, a connection last we spoke. So actually, Russell is the one that um, connected with you and, and suggested that you be our guest today. And I've, I've looked over your website. It's a whole lot of really good stuff, a really nice design. So I'm really impressed with uh, the things you do. And, the, and thanks to Russ for finding you and finding the, the synergy. One of the things that you um, said um, was about the mindset, you know, thinking about the profit and the leadership and the impact um, and the stakeholders. We have a lot of stakeholders and we're talking to nonprofit executive directors, clergy, board chairs, people like that, and maybe even major donors. You're going to give money. You want to make sure that it goes all the way to that impact piece because that's, that's what we want to see. We want to see a difference. But it really starts with the, um, the misconception of the word nonprofit, which is really a lie. And IRS calls it tax exempt. We've somehow invented this nonprofit thing, and, and it, everybody dumbs down to this I'm here. Talk about that a minute and um, where that fits in your thinking, how, how people misperceive profit, how people misperceive leadership. Can you hear me? I think he's frozen. Maybe some, uh, we're having a little technical um, issue today, folks. So maybe we'll um, we'll get back together. John, he showed up over there. We uh, we seem to be having some technical issues. John, your video dropped out. There you are. Russell, you're out there. The same neck of the woods with him. Is there? Is there an internet outage out there? I think John's coming. Well, yeah, he could be. I'm, I'm actually downtown where we're preparing for the Global Mind ED event. Uh, and uh, we have leaders here. Global Minded is a nonprofit that uh, provides uh, services to help first-generation college students connect with employers. Very big event coming up here starting tomorrow, and it'll be running through Friday. So that's where I'm at. We're helping with that and looking to set up interviews with the leaders and coverage of the event so that we have things to talk about. Uh, hopefully John is back with us. Uh, he's done a lot of work. He started out uh, with healthcare organizations and started seeing some leadership challenges around that. So he's done a lot of work and worked with a lot of organizations here in the Denver area to help deal with some of the bottlenecks that you experience with leadership. Uh, and uh, 
um, when those bottlenecks are pretty prevalent, uh, you can run into issues with funding. So uh, he wrote a book about that, that uh, that was one of the things I want to ask him about later is the book. And uh, I have folks uh, get access to that. It's a very good book. Yeah, we, um, we, we did a teaser about the book. We haven't told anybody anything about it yet. But, John, um, we were t I was talking about um, before the, uh, the technology devil came in here and ate up your feed. Um, I was talking about the misconception of profit with the word nonprofit and how leaders have gotten in and boards have gotten into a negative groove. Do you want to talk about that for a minute? And uh, I'll, uh, I'll give it over to Russell. He's the one that has the real tough questions. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah, so if I understand you, the question is profit versus not profit. You know, the, it's interesting. I, I've wrestled with this for a long time. There really is no difference. We all, and we talked about this a bit ago. We, if we're, there's no money, there's no mission. So we have to have, we have to generate enough profit, retained earnings, income, whatever you want to call it so that we can redistribute it. And I often encounter both in the corporate world from healthcare providers that were non-for-profit and some not-for-profits that I've volunteered with over the years that you know, money's just not the big thing. It's, you know, it's all about service. It's all about you know, serving the customer, serving the patient, serving our clientele. Well, if you can't keep the lights on, you can't deliver any service. So it's really, how do we, I, I feel like I'm rambling a bit, but it's, this is where my wholeheartedness comes from. You know, if you look at the way businesses are being structured today, more and more of them are being structured to deliver a different kind of value than just to the bottom line. There are benefit corporations. There are LLCs that are for-profit embedded within not-for-profits. There's a whole host of ways that we can use our work I have air quotes up there, to do good in the world. I, I think it was Khalil Gibran that said, work is love made visible. So regardless of what we're doing, we should be able to bring love into the world, our wholeheartedness, even at a profit. You're muted, you. We, we generate because we generate value. I'm sorry. I, I was talking along and I had my thing muted. So Russell has very thoughtful observations and questions. So I'm going to, I'm going to park for a minute and let him uh, participate. Thank you, Russ, for being here. I know it was a challenge getting on today. Well, thanks. It's good to be here. And John's, John's a, a really amazing person. I'm glad that I met you, John. Uh, and one of the things that, that you and I sort of talked about having coffee was the notion of value and how that's being redefined today. And folks that are uh, running businesses to make a profit often talk in terms of value. But it seems to be a word that nonprofit leaders haven't really wrapped their arms around yet. Uh, and and even if they do, some of the team may not be aware of, okay, what exactly is value? How do you ramp up those discussions when you're talking to not-for-profit organizations in terms of speaking to value and, and what that means to the different audiences they serve? Oh my gosh, what a great question, because nonprofits deliver such value, right? I mean, it's whether it's 
providing home, you know, a roof over our heads, regardless of whether it's providing food and shelter, you know, the, and even so, and so they look at that and say, that's what we're giving to our clientele. That's the, the people that need that value, but they're also delivering value to the donors and the people that are fundraisers. You know, I met with a young man that's moved here from DC. He's his whole background is in philanthropy. And, you know, if I'm a donor, really good. The example that I was thinking through on this was, do you remember um, Sally Struthers and the Feed the Children campaign from years ago? She would come on TV. She would see all these images of children that were hungry. We would make a donation. And then we got a letter from that child. And now we're in relationship to that child. And now there's this warm, fuzzy feeling. I, as a donor, am getting real value from that in my heart. And I think what happens for a lot of us today is we don't think about how we're delivering value to all of our stakeholders, be they fundraisers, donors, clientele, or even the public. And we give different kinds of value to each one of them. So um, for a donor today, one of the big questions that all donors have is, if I give you money, is it going to go to the, the end user or is it going to get eaten up in administrative costs? And, you know, there are a whole host of people now that are doing evaluations or rankings around that. But there's also, how do you come to me and say, how can I pluck John's heartstrings? How can I pluck Russell's heartstrings? Um, I have a friend of mine, her daughter came into the world with a lot of physical challenges. And she was in Children's Hospital for years. And her mom was in and out. And so, (coughs) excuse me. If I deliver a message to her that talks about children and supporting people while they're waiting for the child to come out of children's hospital, that's delivering value to me because it sings and resonates with me. Does that make sense? Uh, and, and that's the trick. That's the challenge that I think a lot of for-purpose enterprises is we prefer to call them, uh, a term that was given to us by one of our guests. That's the challenge because you've got multiple audiences. Value uh, is not only uh, something that has to be quantified in more than just material terms, it's different for every audience. And the way that we relate to each other is through stories. And so people are discovering that. uh, And the big question is what's your story, you know? Uh, different people have different metrics depending on, on their perspective. So uh, how important is it to have ways to measure what's valuable and how do you help nonprofits navigate that when they've got these multiple audiences and, and uh, how do you help them navigate uh, figuring out what the message is for each one of those audiences? Again, a really good question. It's, it's and, you know, when I hear measurement, you know, I think to my friend Annette, who is a really good evaluator, does a lot of research and quantify the numbers and cents. And when you think about a sentence or a paragraph or a story, how do you measure the ROI? What's the equation? Um, actually, there's a lady by the name of Nancy Duarte that has mapped a really good storytelling. She took Martin Luther King's um, I Have a Dream speech and mapped the structure of that speech with its peaks and valleys to lead to the 
enrollment of the audience in his message. But to answer your question, sometimes the impact is emotional. And even though we are driven by our spreadsheets in business, those are only to back up the emotional decision we've already made. So working with a not-for-profit, when we think about the donor, we have to think about what emotions do we want to touch through. If I'm talking to a philanthropist or a fund, someone that's like the, the Knight Foundation, I have to think about what's the emotion, what's the feeling that I want them to feel towards what they're going to do for us. When I go out and try to pull people in off the streets as clients into my organization, how do I want them to feel? And so it's what I find most of us do is we run, 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 and we don't stop to think about the value. And it's not always what we think it is. So what I counsel my clients on is it's not putting food in someone's hands. It's answering the question or the concern they have about who's giving me the food. I'll give you an example. Most painting contractors think they're hired to paint the house. And that all they have to do is tell the consumer, we do great painting. The reality is the consumer is thinking, yeah, I'd like to have my house painted, but how do I know that painter is going to be on time? How do I know they're going to be done on time? How do I know they're not going to leave a mess? So we have to answer that question, the question behind the question, in order to pull those, whether it's a donor, a fundraiser, uh, the clientele, or the public, because the public can be very strong advocates for our, not, our, our for-purpose organizations, as you like to call them. Great word choice, by the way. Again, that's... It, it, I'm bouncing a bit, but that changes the whole framework of how you think about the organization, doesn't it? There's the not-for-profit and the for-purpose, that there's kind of a withdrawal and a engagement there. So really good choice of words there. Well, you know, and I'd kind of like to go back to the statement about people looking at how you spend the money and uh, I think that, that we've seen some perception problems with, uh, with the, the structure of an organization. A lot of people want to write checks for the programs, but they don't necessarily want to pay the nonprofit's rent. So you have to have a structure to deliver a program. But if you're running the organization delivering the programs, you have to be very efficient. You have to be very good stewards with the resources that are entrusted to you. So talk about some of the things you, you do when working with organizations of any stature to, to navigate that. And so when you say um, stewardship, are you talking about attracting money? Are you talking about managing expenses? Well, well yeah, taking care of the money that's entrusted to you, making the best use of it and uh, maximizing value with it, taking good care of it? Well, that's a great question. You know, um, years and years and years ago, this is, this is so, this will surprise you. I ran into a nonprofit collection agency. This was an organization that was embedded within another organization, and their money was to support the organization that they were embedded in. But, you know, for them, they could have really good expenses and really nice cars and really great lifestyles. But 
a lot of that wasn't coming back to what it was originally meant for. I contrast that with the young man I was telling you about earlier who sits on the board for a nonprofit. And someone came in and said, we're getting ready to do our new benefits, and we want to have a nine-month maternity leave. We want to have 35 days of PTO. They said, wait a minute. How can we do that? That's stealing from our organization. It's stealing from our constituents. So the easy answer for you, Russell, is really it's a mindset. What are we really here to do? Are we here to serve or are we here to take? And my experience is the more we deliver into the world, the more we give, the more we receive in return without having to strive for that. The way I work with most of my customers is to help them attract the stakeholders that they need. So it's, you know, what prompted our conversation was this book, The 45-Minute Business Breakthrough. What that's about is that Bob leads, you know, how do I get people that are interested in coming to my organization, whether they're a client or a donor? And we often think, well, they'll find me. But if it's, it's not who you know, it's who knows you. So we have to create and craft a message that resonates with those people. So, um, John, hold that book up again. Hold the book up again. Yeah, you remember my age of mystery day. Oops. Um, oh, no, blew it. So tell us about the book, John. Well, it's called the 45-Minute Business Breakthroughs, How to Find Revenue for Your Business in 45 Minutes. 45 Minutes? Yes. What takes so long? No. That's, <laughs> that's pretty fast. What's the, tell us for That's got much in Well, it's really simple. So um, think about the real estate agent that tells you, I sell real estate and I sell commercial and residential up and down the front range. Here in Denver, there are 20,000 real estate agents. Now contrast that to the one that says, hi, I help millennials find the loft of their dreams in downtown Denver. Now even though I'm not a millennial, I'm far past the millennial stage, I'll remember that message. And when I hear someone say they're looking for a loft, I can make the hook. And then if you ask yourself, well, what would, it, what would that do for my business? You can find money really fast. When you talk about how do I make an offer that's so compelling that I come into relationship with you, and maybe it's just I sign up for your newsletter. And I start to hear the stories about your organization and how you're changing lives. All of a sudden now, when it comes time to write a check, I'm more likely to write a check. There's an organization here that I do some work with called Goodwill to Work. I get to work with high school children, to, I call them children, kids, as they're preparing to enter the workforce with mock interviews, um, reviewing their portfolios, reviewing their resumes. Gives me great faith in the future of ourselves. But when they come looking for money, I'm more open to that because I'm invested in that. So it's really helping the business owner to answer your question. You look at the five areas that drive 80% of their growth. And that's leads. It's how do I turn those leads into customers? How do I create an offer that gives them more value so they're willing to spend more money with me? And please, for God's sake, quit discounting. 
When well, you discount your product, you have to sell more to get the same. There is a correlation here. And, you know, we, we talk about, uh, you know, talk to churches about selling. They say, we don't sell. I said, what is evangelism? Um, and, and I talked to generic nonprofits about business models. No, we're a nonprofit. People are supposed to give everything. Well, that does not mean you can beat up your employees. And that's why the burnout rate's about 50% with executive directors. Mm-hmm. So a, you're moving into the mindset. So of, um, of it's really a, a social entrepreneurial mindset. And you talked about businesses having a triple bottom line. I think nonprofits should have multiple bottom lines. Uh, and one of them should be um, retained earnings. So Russell, why don't you weigh on this? You used to work for the, the company that had the agency that had three letters <laughs> and you know, it's about where the money goes. So we have to, we need another number for profit and we need another way to look at accounting so that overhead is, is really clear. What's overhead yeah, that goes to the service for the, the people we serve. So Russell, this whole thing of the words of, of profit is kind of, kind of uncomfortable. Well, you know, a lot of when people use it in, in our circles and charity circles, they call it surplus. But the bottom line is that you have to bring in more than you push out. And if you bring in more than you push out, you become what's known as sustainable. So, and operating with the surplus is important because you've got to be prepared for all types of contingencies. There are things that happen, Mother Nature, for example, uh, you have fires, you have floods, you have hurricanes, you have all these different events that impact other businesses. They impact the, the nonprofits on the ground as well. So it's important to operate at that surplus. And uh, when it comes to overhead, which is everything that really isn't directly poured into the services, uh, people think of those in terms of a cost versus an investment. If it's an investment, you get a good return on that. That means that the management is, is taking really good care of the assets. They're providing superior service. They're very effective. They're very efficient uh, at keeping costs under control. But you still have that structure there so that they go out and grow and create, uh, create more impact, as it were. And impact is in the eyes and ears of the beholder. And uh, I know John's heard this term uh, multiple times. Uh, John, you deal with it both with for-profits and non-profits when it comes to talking about impact. So what's your experience with that word? Do you find that it's uh, overused or misused? And how do you help people frame that in a way that's balanced? No. <laughs> you know, I, um, I'm not sure. I'm... I'm... I, I play with the word balance because nature abhor, actually abhors a balance. And if there's a balance, <laughs> it's going to disrupt it. It's really more of how do we um, create harmony around it. Okay. But as you say, impact is in the eyes of the beholder. So, again, it's about – I find this with myself often. I get up, I sit down at my desk, and I start working. And then I get done, I've done a lot, and I go, well, what impact did I actually have? So the first step is to really slow down and think through, like Stephen Covey said, what is the end in mind? What impact do I want to have? And 
impact can be as per like one client recently, the impact she wanted to have was more visibility in her organization. All right. So if I, if that's what I want to have, if that's my end in mind, how do I have to show up? How do I have to make you feel Russell to get that visibility? Okay. All right. If I, now that I know those two questions, I can ask myself, who do I have to be to bring them? In terms of messaging, it's what do I want them to experience? But a great example, I had a customer the other day tell me that they wanted, so we often think about painting as putting a coating on the wall. For this company, it's a customer experience. The experience that you and I as a homeowner experience for you at painting. In the case of the Rocky Mountain Microfinance Institute, it's what impact do they have on their small business owners as they compete in a 12-week boot camp for a micro Well, the answer is they get, I think it's like 95% of their loans are repaid. Those companies are still in business years later. Every time I go, there's someone that would not have gotten a job in the real world or in the corporate world that has created a successful business because they went through a 12-week boot camp to learn really basic kinds of things. But the impact is, how are they feeling? What are the net results? It, it's all of that. I, it's, does that answer your question, or does that help? That does, yes. So for anybody that is, is out there making a difference, there are all these measures. And so how people measure things is, is critical. But it's getting out there, being a service and doing that uh, better than uh, others, uh, efficiently and effectively as you possibly can. And so there are a lot of tools that leaders need to have in order to drive value, in order to grow an organization. And so what are some of the most basic tools that uh, that you give your clients when you start working with them initially? Are there, are there some uh, really key basics that are missing in a large quantity or, or some things that leaders overlook? What are, in essence, what are some of the things that you find that nonprofit leaders overlook more frequently than not? Great question. I think there. Are, I think there are two big opportunities. Whatever your um, work is, the first one is really getting clear and planting your flag on who you serve. Really being clear that we're in this to serve children, sick children, healthy children, starving children, you know, whatever the service is, and then nobody else. We all will think we can serve everybody. We want to serve all sorts of people. But until we plant the flag and say, this is who we serve, how we serve, and why we serve, we're noise. Russell, you know this. You're here in Denver. There are 11,000 nonprofits in the Denver Boulder community. Many of them are duplicating services. It's noise in the marketplace. How do they stand out? So planting the flag, being clear, and saying, I'm for the 10% that this resonates with. Because then they will find us. And we will get some of the other people that will be in that outer circle that will be attracted to us. But we have to call our tribe to us. 
So on from the business standpoint, that's probably the biggest thing. And, and I get this. I want to serve everybody too, but we really have to get clear on who we serve, why we serve, and how we serve. Yeah, um, the idea. Oh, sorry. The idea of actually sort of niching down and, and picking a category is frightening for both business owners and nonprofit leaders. I know that I've had movement within my own business of who do you serve? Do you? Will there be scarcity? And I think scarcity thinking is is terrible for the mindset of an entrepreneur regardless of the tax status of the organization she or he runs. So uh, how do you have that conversation with people uh, who may be apprehensive about the idea of niching down and being more focused and more targeted? Well, it's, it's history. It's, it's um, experience and it's, hmm. I'm working with a, a, a company right now. They've been doing Groupons to call in their clientele. I finally got him to stop that because what he would get was he would get people who would come in looking for the discount all the time, but they weren't coming back to purchase more. So now he's recognized that that's not really the clientele he wants to serve. He wants to serve people that really care about what he delivers. And when he gets one of them, they don't even question his price. They know that they can trust him. He's going to deliver the service, and they're going to walk away with value. So it's you kind of have to ask people to step out on faith and try it. And I have yet to have someone try it failing. I just had this conversation with a lady at a digital marketing firm this morning. And she says, you know, Sometimes I just have to have faith. I don't have to worry about this deal or that donor or that foundation. I just have to have faith that if I serve, I'll be rewarded. And then she said, it took me about until I was in my 40s to realize that my middle name was faith. So faith plays a role in all of this. Well, it does. And John, you talked earlier about going to the bottom for price. We tend to want to race to the bottom because we, we think we have to have the lowest price to attract people. And there's a similar model with nonprofits where we, we have this money shadow. We don't talk about money. We don't want to ask for money. And it's reframing the whole conversation about what you said earlier about value. And so what we're talking about is value and a money is an exchange. We got to pay the rent. We got to pay. Um, we got to pay for the salaries of those good people that we depend on. But um, talk about this, this thing with money. Do you see what I'm talking about? There's a similarity with um, entrepreneurs trying to price their programs. They look at everybody else and go under it, which is not a good way to do it, where nonprofits are asking for too little money. I, I lost your audio there for just a minute, but the, it's a really good question. What I find so I grew up in sales, and so I was always afraid to ask for the order because I was afraid I was going to hear no. As a nonprofit, if I'm asking for donations, I don't want to hear no. Nobody wants to hear no because they're afraid of being outcast. And I, I, I just kind of come to the realization, I wrote this on a blog post not too recently. I was on my way to a meeting with someone to give a presentation, 
And I had this little voice in my head saying, who are you? Who, who, are, who do you think you are? And I was actually in the presentation watching the audience, and I saw a couple of people on their phones. I'm like, oh, my God, they're not paying attention to me. I've lost them. And I got some of the highest marks I've ever had for a delivery. And so I've come to the conclusion that I kind of want to have that voice that says, who are you? This is not your comfort zone on my shoulder. So I know I'm actually doing the work that's going to deliver value to my organization. And so I think to get to your question, how do we get past that fear of asking for money or undervaluing ourselves? It's we step out of our comfort zone and really realize the value that we bring because I have yet to have an experience where I have said, I can step into this even though I don't know where it's going to go, that it hasn't delivered value. And I think all too often we think if we don't know exactly how it's going to happen, we don't want to step into it because we're afraid it might go wrong. Yes, life begins outside of the comfort zone. It really does. You know, I was, I was teaching a class one time that was very dependent on a certain program running just the right way. And about 20% of the class got an update from Microsoft that eliminated that functionality. It's like, what am I going to do? And it was just, I'm going to, we'll get to it. We'll talk about it. Stay with me. Keep teaching. Get feedback from my tech team in between on techs and all that. Who was the highest re- reviews I'd ever gotten? They've asked me back several times. I kind of want to create a mm, something to go wrong in a presentation now just so that there's that kind of results because I think when we get out of our comfort zone and we get in that place where it's not working exactly right, we become more present. We become more focused on what we want to deliver to our audience, whether it's one or many. Um, one of the things I wanted to come back to, we, you asked me earlier, Russell, about what's one of the biggest things that um, for purpose or for profits or anybody struggles with. And I shared with you that niching idea. The other piece is more personal. It's self-accountability. You know, we, we talked earlier about self-leadership. Many of us are more than willing to hold everybody accountable for what they're supposed to do. And we have meetings around it. We have metrics to race for it. But the thing that we're not accountable to is to our own self. The number one appointment that we break in our calendar is the one we set with ourselves. So I might sit down and say, I need to plan my budget for next quarter, but the phone will ring and I'll pick up the phone instead of working on that budget. Or I might decide I want to lose 10 pounds. I'm going to quit eating French fries and start running. But then it snows. And when we don't hold ourselves accountable, we can't hold other people accountable. And we start breaking promises to ourselves. We start disbelieving ourselves when we say, I can get that done. So part of it is keeping our own promises to ourselves. Well, it's very interesting that people make commitments to others that they won't make to themselves. That's, I think that's a human nature type of thing. And uh, that sort of plays into uh, what's best. And uh, there are a number of, of people that talk about self-care and taking care of yourself. And uh, one of the things with leader burnout is that people drive themselves uh, 
far too much and don't necessarily take care of themselves. When you, when you come across executives that you're working with and uh, a lot of times they're burned out, uh, what's the first thing you tell them as far as uh, taking care of themselves or how do you go about finding out if that's the problem they do have? It's about creating psychological safety. You know, part of what happens, and we can do this in our own organizations and our families, we want to create safety so that people can be and bring their whole self into the conversation. You know, I'm, I'm a child of the 80s. It was greed is good. We've got to put up our front. And you know, we used to literally, if you remember the shoulder pads from back then, we literally put our armor on, right? But the reality is... When we can bring our whole self into a conversation, we don't have to carry the stress of trying to be someone that we're not. So the first part is creating psychological safety, and people will begin to open up and tell us what's really going on in their lives. I tell people when they're working with me, yep, yeah, there's a lot to do, but the first thing you have to do is schedule two hours, just two hours per week for you to sit back, and think about what do I want to do this week? What happened last week? What did I get done? Yay, celebrate. What did I not get done? And what am I going to do to move that forward? All too often, we run from task to task to task to task. And we don't slow down to shift our state to move into the next meeting. So I work with a lot of people that have nine meetings a day. It's incredible. When do you get your work done, right? But I see three. So, so um, we're, we're coming to the last minutes of our um, interview. I want to give you um, a few minutes to talk about one of the most important topics is communication. And in 32 years of working with organizations, um, I've never, there's never been an organization I've worked with that hadn't brought it up as one of the top topics. So just in a quick overview, um, once you talk about why that's significant in the work that you do, and then I'll have a sponsor moment and then uh, give it back to you for a closing thought before Russell ends up this really good interview. And John, there's a lot of good sound bites, I must say. So um, this will be transcribed for those people listening. You can look on the podcast or on the website at the nonprofitexchange.org and you can find the transcript. So John, just give us, what is your take on what, what's missing and communication, and what do we need to do to make it better? Mm. So I think there are four things that we need for really effective communication. Number one is clarity. If we're not clear with our message, I just ran across this the other night. I think it's from Yo-Yo Ma. If, we're not, if we don't have clarity of message, we are just noise. And so what happens all too often is I tell you I'm looking for a dog. And you'll tell me, well, you should get a Labrador. Russell will tell me I need a Terrier. Someone else will tell me a Shepherd. I'm allergic to most dogs, and my wife doesn't want anything over 20 pounds. So if I had been clear with what I was looking for, you could be clear and respond. So slowing down to get clear, number one. Number two is respect. Every organization you and I work with has respect either in their manual, in their mission statement, in their vision statement, and yet 94% of the workforce reports having incivil behavior in the last year. 
54% in the last month. This comes from Harvard Business Review. And what does disrespect look like? It might be not holding the door open. It might be just perceived disrespect. But we have to think about how do we create psychological safety. And even if you're a high performer, if you're not treating people right, we need to help you move to a place where your humor is appreciated. Candor. Everyone wants more candor. And if I, were to, if I were to show you my slide, there would be a burning plane behind me because NASA did some research and said commercial airline pilots in a simulator, they gave them a crisis. There were three outcomes. One, the captain took control of the plane and crashed it. Number two, the captain said, crew, I need some help. Everybody contributed, shared information, worked together. The plane landed safely. The third one's the interesting one. The captain said, help me. And the crew said, you got this. And they crashed almost as often as the first one. Why? Because the captain created an environment where candor was not appreciated. So what happens in our organizations if we are not open to candor? What are we not learning about? And the last piece is attention. What are we focused on? You know, how many times have you told your child, don't spill the milk? What happened? Spill the milk. When we tell people stop complaining, stop smoking, stop fighting, blah, 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 they don't hear stop. The brain doesn't hear stop. Let's focus on what we want. So those four things are what we need for good communications. Don't be late to the meeting. So right. those four are, number one, clarity, message. Number clarity, two. respect, candor, and attention. John, you're, you're so, this is a lot of good sound bites. You're so well read. And um, I, I love this thing about the clarity of the dog. So the guy goes up to an intersection in, in Denver and there's a guy and a dog there. And he says, hey, man, is your dog bite? And the guy says, no. So he reaches to pet the dog and the dog takes a big chunk out of his arm. And he said to the guy, I thought you said your dog doesn't bite. And the guy says, that's not my dog. <laughs> right. So it's, it's an old joke, but it's, it's a good example of what you're talking about. We're assuming that's his dog because it's standing next to him. But so we have a lot of times we talk about how leaders actually set up problems and then we make them worse. And all this, this candor, this autocratic leadership is not what we do. And so thank you for this. I'm going to throw it back to you to leave a, a tip or a, a challenge or parting thought with people. But our, our um, longtime sponsor of the nonprofit exchange and for uh, nonprofit Performance 360 magazine is Word Sprint. Now, you can join our community uh, if you go to nonprofitexchange.com, thenonprofitexchange.org, I'm sorry, thenonprofitexchange.org, you'll see a button at the top, a blue one that says join. You join our community, put your address in, you'll get our magazine. If you join for free, you'll get a digital version. If you pay any any level of payment, you'll get a print copy and a digital copy at home. And WordSprint is, is our delivery uh, company. They're a mail house and you get it and you get a message about what we're doing at Center Vision, the impact we have on people's lives by helping nonprofits perform at a higher level. Starts with a leader, as John talked about, and the leader influences the team and the team influences the stakeholders and we all do a better job together. And there's, last time I checked, John, money is a renewable resource. We just have to be better at attracting it. 
And so top of mind marketing is what WordSprint does. And in two decades of research, they know exactly the message is 30%, the right person in the right rhythm, and then it needs to look nice. But 30% is the right message to the right person, another 30% in a rhythm so that they're constantly thinking about the impact of your work. That requires that you know what the impact is. But staying in touch with your tribe, whether you're in business or you're running a, a for-purpose enterprise, what we call nonprofit in this nonprofit exchange, talk to Word Sprint. It's like fastwordsprint.com. Bill Gilmer and his team will talk to you about how they can help you retain your donor base, increase your donor base, and acquire a new donor base. So we're, we're increasing the donation level, actually, and we're increasing the number of donors. So wordsprint.com is our longtime partner in the magazine and our longtime partner in helping our tribe stay connected. So before Russell closes out this really helpful interview, John, what thought do you want to leave with people today? Uh, I thought about this in, in preparation for this. I talked to a couple of colleagues that are active in the nonprofit community and what they shared with me that one of the big stressors for nonprofits is resiliency. Had there a lot of stress, they're under-resourced, they're struggling against um, how do we deliver value to our constituents. And so I thought, well, what would be helpful to that would be number one, to acknowledge that the stress is there. All too often as leaders, we paper over the stress or over the frustration. But until we admit that there's something there, we can't deal with it. And if we don't admit it, our team is looking to us and saying, something's going on, you're just not telling us. So acknowledge. Have a little bit of grace. We're all doing the best we can. And if we, everybody's doing something for their own reasons, so let's get clear about what's going on. Be accountable to yourself and to others. When everybody is doing what they're supposed to do, and I don't have to pick up after you, and you don't have to pick up after me, there's less stress in the organization. Clarity of values, beliefs, and behaviors, making sure that we all agree what we want to do to serve our organizations and our constituents. And really just appreciation of ourselves and others. All too often we go from day to day to day, from win to win to win, and we don't stop and celebrate. Stop and celebrate the things that you've done well. I, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you very much, John. I really appreciate that. It's been a very enlightening conversation. And we are here at the Nonprofit Exchange every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern, where you get to hear experts like John talk about some of the things that can help make you more effective and better at serving all of the people who count on you. You are doing remarkable work out there. And just a thought to close out, always remember that honesty without compassion is brutality. How we talk to each other and work with each other is very critical inside so that we can serve the audiences that we serve. You can find the Nonprofit Exchange on both Stitcher and iTunes. Go there and subscribe. And by all means, visit our Cinevision Leadership website and click the blue button in the right-hand corner that says join so that you'll know when experts like John are going to be here 
and get access to all sorts of remarkable resources, webinars, and community. It is a community. So when you join, we get to keep the conversation going between podcasts. And thank, thanks again to Bill Gilmer for sponsoring us. Until this time next week, we'll be uh, thanking you for all the hard work you do. And we look forward to seeing you at this same time next week on the Nonprofit Exchange. Till then, keep on making that big difference in the world. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.